Thank you. Please be seated. And if you have a Bible and you'd like to turn with me, we're going to the Gospel according to John, chapter 15. We're in the upper room with the Lord, and he is speaking to them many words to prepare them to continue that work and ministry as he himself ascends to his Father and sends the Holy Spirit. Many of these uh, themes come back and uh, uh, back around in this section, and it's uh, hard, therefore, to pick, pick things out. I was going to have a little bit larger sermon, but I decided to say the part especially about both the persecution of the world and the responsibility he gives to witness knowing that the Spirit of God, as he puts it here, that he will bear witness and we also must testify. This double witness that we are to have even in the face of a hostile world. We'll consider next week, so I'm not uh, going to be just ignoring those parts, but I will pick them up next time. Let's read together, though. I'll actually start back in verse 10 of chapter 15. Let's read together the word of the Lord. And... We read here, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, than to lay down one's life for his friends. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you, that you should go and bear fruit, and that your fruit should remain. That whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. These things I command you, that you love one another. If the world hates you, you know that it hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love its own. Yet because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, They will keep yours also, but all these things they will do to you for my name's sake, because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would have no sin, but now they have no excuse for their sin. He who hates me hates my father also. If I had not done among them the works which no one else did, they would would have no sin, but now they have seen and also hated both me and my father. But this happened that the word might be fulfilled, which is written in their law. They hated me without a cause. Let us pray together. Our Father in heaven, we, uh, in, with open hearts before you in so many ways, Lord, you know, shrink back from such challenging words. We find ourselves un. Uh, unfruitful. We are unsatisfied with our lives. We are not keeping your commands as we have longed to do. 
We confess, our Father, that we have not even drawn the hatred of the world, but have sought to escape it in so many ways, even as this was the natural tendency of the disciples in those days. And you sent this word of the Lord, giving him these words to speak, as he himself says. So we pray that you would speak them again in our hearing and to every heart, and so encourage us. Make us to be bold and to be fruitful in your service. We pray that you would open these words of life, that it would bring life to a darkened world. For Christ's sake, amen. The author of our first hymn today, Joseph Scriven, or Scriven, I'm not sure which, was born in Ireland. When he was 25 years old, he met a young lady and was engaged. They were planning their wedding and they were so excited, but just before the wedding, a great tragedy happened and that girl died in a drowning accident one day before the wedding. Well, Joseph's heart was broken and soon afterward he got on a boat, left Ireland and went to Canada in order to heal his broken heart in a new place. Eventually, There he met a young lady by the name of Eliza Roach, and she fell in love with him. He fell in love with Eliza. They too got engaged, and she came down with an illness and also died before the wedding. Joseph's heart was twice devastated. He never did marry the rest of his life. He stayed single. He devoted his life to the preaching of the gospel and to showing compassion to those whose hearts were likewise broken and who needed a friend. The very same time um, that his fiancée, number two, Eliza Roach, died, word came to him that his mother in Ireland was sick and on her deathbed. He could not afford at that time to get on a boat and to go back to Ireland, so instead he wrote a poem, a poem that became the song What a friend we have in Jesus. The man had found the friendship of the Lord himself, and he sought to communicate that to as many people as possible. And the second verse was so pointed, especially coming from his lips. Have we trials and temptations? Is there trouble anywhere? We should never be discouraged. Take it to the Lord in prayer. Can we find a friend so faithful who will all our sorrows share? Jesus knows our every weakness. Take it to the Lord in prayer. It's one thing if somebody who had never suffered wrote that song, true though it would be, but coming from his own pen, from his own life, that makes these words even more powerful. We need such a friend. What is it that a friend means to us? What do we want in a friend? What is a good friend like? A while ago, a survey was given to 40,000 Americans asking what qualities Americans most want in friends. Number one, the ability to keep a confidence. In other words, a faithful friend who will not gossip, somebody that will zip the lip when needed. Some of you can take notice. This is, uh, number two, someone who is loyal. Number three, someone who's warm and affectionate. I find that a very interesting list. We need good friends, and considering the loving friendship of Jesus, we find in him one who is 
devoted and loyal and affectionate. And I'd like to look, at, look with you this morning specifically at the kind of friendship that he has to give us, a friendship that is personal, a friendship that is particular, and for most of the time, a friendship that is practical, for he has called us friends in order that we might have a special ministry in bearing fruit in his name. But first, uh, a personal friendship. What kind of a difference does it make that the Lord loves us, that we know that he loves us? Well, how, how can we know? Maybe you say, can we know because we have an easy life, because we are hashtag blessed? Well, no, the true mark of love is not a life that is free from any difficulty or trial. We certainly get that from this passage. It's very plain. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And we'll see next week as he takes this up, I'll have much more to say about that, that we are to go out into the world and bear a testimony for Jesus in the face of more than sufficient persecution. The evidence that the Lord loves us, though, is everywhere that he's redeemed us, he's forgiven us, preserved us, walked with us, chastened us, and will not let us go, but supremely given here in verse 13. Greater love has no one than this than to lay down one's life for his friends. For in Jesus, death was not his fate. It was his deed. He laid down his life for us. And it is a very personal friendship, you see, a very passionate and personal friendship, laying down his life for us that is in our place. Um, If you'll indulge me for a second, probably the most influential theologian of the 20th century, for good or ill, was Karl Barth, a brilliant Swiss Reformed writer who almost single-handedly dismantled German liberal theology, but I'm sad to say introduced a number of grievous problems to the church. But at one point, they asked him, uh, somebody asked him what the most important word was in the Bible. He answered in Greek, huper, uh, word from our passage, the word for. For? The most important word in the Bible is for? Sometimes people are too smart for their own good, you think. Well, um, in my place, condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. He lays down his life for, in place of. Instead of, in my place, he laid down his life. Hallelujah, what a Savior. That is to say, it was a very loving, personal salvation. And that's what the brilliant theologian was saying in so many ways. That we are glorying, not in just this Son of God who went to the cross, as wonderful as that would be, but the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. In my place. And that is a very powerful truth. Machen wrote to his seminary students, from the cold universalism of that Arminian creed, we turn ever again with new thankfulness to the warm and tender individualism of our reformed faith, which we believe to be in accord with God's holy word. Thank God that we can say, everyone, as we contemplate Christ upon the cross, not just that he died there for the mass of humanity, and how glad I am that I am amid that mass, but he loved me. And he gave himself for me. My name was written from all eternity upon his heart. When he hung there and suffered there on the cross, he thought of me, even me, as one for whom in his grace he was willing to die. And that was the emphasis of our prayer earlier. Maybe for a good man, somebody would even dare to die. 
but he commends his love for us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us who pair. The truth announced everywhere in Scripture is that God will never love you more than he does now. Oh, you will grow, and you will be happier, and you will be holier. But God loves you now with all the love with which he has ever loved his son. Did you know that? He says that in chapter 17, that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Or, as he writes to the Ephesians, but God, who's rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he has loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, he made us alive together with Christ. So we are introduced to a love that is very passionate and that is very personal. If you'll excuse the seminary references, it's, uh, it is very theological. There's a lot of theology in this passage that can be opened up. I'm not going to go there today, simply to point out uh, how important it is when we read carefully that we realize the warmth, the personal, passionate nature of his love, who loved you who gave himself for you. A personal friendship. It's also a particular friendship. He tells them in verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain, and so forth. Um, people say that the two things that influence you the most over the years are the books you read and the friends you make. So choose them both very carefully. Well, so it is with the Lord. He says here that he has chosen his friends. <laughs> and I think it was Charles Spurgeon that said, it's a good thing that God picked me before I was born because he would have never picked me after I was born. But, uh, of course, the, the truth is just the opposite. That was a joke of his. The truth is that God knew it all before, and he loved us. He knew our wickedness, our backsliding, our sin, the iniquity of our hearts. He's already told the disciples, and he will tell them again that he knows. This very night, they are, going to be, they are going to depart from him. One is going to betray him. They are all going to forsake him. One is going to deny. He knew. And he has appointed them to go and to bear fruit. Them. And this choosing of even the weak things of the world... Like every truth of God, it involves mystery, it stirs controversy, Packer said, but in Scripture it is a pastoral doctrine brought in to help us see the great grace that saves them and to move us to humility and confidence and joy and praise and faithfulness and holiness. This choosing here probably refers to him choosing them as, them, as, as his apostles. You've not chosen me, I've chosen you. But the principle is the same for each one of us because knowing all of our frailties and failures, he has likewise chosen us and appointed us to bear fruit and fruit that should remain. And he wants his spiritual children to know that he loves us and accepts us not because of our works, but he has a pr appointed a fruitful life for each one of us. And so it's a particular friendship as well. Well, this leads me to my third and my longest point to you today, a practical friendship. It's a practical friendship, and I think this really is the emphasis of the passage in context. You are my friends if you do whatever I command you. No longer do I call you servants, for a servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends for all things that I have heard from my father. I 
have made known to you. You didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to go and bear fruit and so forth. Friendship with the Lord obviously doesn't mean that we are now equals. That we are buddy-buddy, high-five, or anything like that. We're not on the same level, for he is the Lord. But Jesus is referring to a loving intimacy with those who know him. He's not ordering us around as servants. He's rather drawing us into his confidence, revealing to us his heart, teaching us his way and how we might follow him and so bear much fruit. In context here, he is preparing his disciples on the eve of his crucifixion to go and to take his word into a hostile world, our theme for next week. But to do so in a fruitful way, we are going to have to follow him. And in this section, in an indirect way, he is repeatedly giving us practical instruction about what it means. Let me give you uh, the principle right up front. You tend to become like your friends. That's why your parents want you to choose good ones, right? Uh, you, You become like your friends, and Jesus is saying to his friends to follow him in a certain way, as we'll see throughout this passage, that submission to God will give you authority from God. Submission to God will give you authority from God. Let me explain, and there will be a payoff for this, so if you'll follow me for a a moment. Jesus is one who obviously has authority. He tells them in verse 10 to keep his commandments. He says in verse 14, you are my friends if you do whatever I command you. A servant is not greater than his master, verse 20, um, and so forth. Jesus has absolute authority, but there's another emphasis in the passage besides Jesus' absolute authority. Did you catch it? It comes again and again. Jesus has absolute submission. Verse 10, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Verse 15, all things I heard from my Father, I have made known to you, and so forth, also again and again in the passage. This is not often preached on But this has been a major emphasis throughout the Gospel of John as he has been training his disciples. Since it's not often mentioned, and I haven't mentioned it, I don't think, I'll I'll give you just a few more references to catch you up on um, what the emphasis has been. Just picking a few of the many. In chapter 4, he told his disciples, My food is to do the will of him who sent me to finish his work. I have come to do his will. Not my own will, my Father's will. Chapter 5, the Son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the Father do. Verse, uh, chapter 8, I always do those things that please him. Chapter 12, I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command that I should say and what I should speak. Therefore, whatever I speak, just as the Father has told me, so I speak. And again and again, Jesus declares that he is one in perfect submission to his Father, that he does nothing on his own authority. He speaks nothing from his own word. He does only 
what pleases him. He speaks all that the Father has directed him to speak, his food and to drink, and drink is to do the will of him who sent him and to finish his work. That Jesus, chapter after chapter, has told us he is completely, utterly, perfectly in submission to his Father and does what he commands. And so, you know, kids, one of the reasons why we encourage you to choose your friends wisely is because you come, become like them. You do what they do. You say what they say. And so it is that Jesus is commending this to his own friends. It's a very practical friendship because this isn't a passage so much about Jesus as it is about following Jesus as he's preparing them to go forth. And in the chapter, Jesus is teaching us to follow him in everything, speaking his word, you notice, keeping his commandments, finishing the work, even to the point of suffering persecution for his name's sake. Because, you see, as Jesus has done to the Father, now he is sending them. This is a very practical thing now that they become like their friend in these things. Well, you say, um, who, who are these fishermen to be sent out speaking Jesus' words and finishing his work and so forth? And you might say, who am I? Well, you see, all throughout the Gospel of John, Jesus has claimed his authority based on what? Does he say, hey, you better listen to me because I'm God incarnate. You better obey me. I am the Lord of all. He does not say that. Though it is true, and we'd expect him to say that. But chapter after chapter, time and time again, when the Lord asserts his authority... It is always because of his submission. When the Lord claims authority, it's not because of his own divine prerogative. Here is the paradox. He has authority on the grounds of his submission. Are you following this? You think it's a very theological sermon today, Dave? Okay. Let me read you a few more passages. John 7. My doctrine is not mine, but his who sent me. If anyone wants to know his will, he'll know concerning the doctrine whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. I have not come of myself, but he who sent me is true. That's why you should believe this word. Did you ever notice this overwhelming emphasis in the Gospel of John? Probably you, you noticed it because it comes up again and again, and you think, oh, it's a little strange. Chapter 14, just one chapter back. The words that I speak to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me. You see the point. Jesus is saying, look, you should heed me because... I am the perfect instrument for speaking the word and doing the will and finishing the work of God. Whatever he does, I do. Whatever he wants me to speak, that I say. You need to obey me and heed my words and join my work and fulfill my ministry because these things are not mine at all. And my perfect authority is because of my perfect submission to the will, word, and work of God. So here in verse 15, all things I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. Friends of Jesus, here is the principle. Submission to God leads to authority 
from God. Can you, can you see that emphasis? Even if you don't understand all the reasons why, can you see that it's there? Because it's very practical. It's very practical as he's sending these fishermen out, and who are they anyway? What authority do they have? Well, they have none. Okay, so let's, let's start by applying this to what's happening right now. Some of you are paying attention. To the ministry of the word. What gives a minister of the word his authority? Is it because he's got a magnetic personality? That he is so handsome and charismatic? That he has a powerful voice? Certainly that's not the case in me. I know people who maybe have something of a following because they have some nice natural endowments that way, but I know that's not why you're here. What gives the minister any authority? Any authority? Is it not his submission? Because when I stand here, and you know that I've studied to give you not my words, but the words of him who sent me, and I don't have anything else to offer you, I will, I will explain it, I will illustrate it, I will apply it as truly and carefully and faithfully as best I can, but, but you know I have no authority from God uh, except insofar as I am in submission to God. And that is why the, Luke calls elsewhere uh, a minister or a servant of the word. A very vivid picture, serving a servant of the word. It is my ambition to say with Jesus, I have given to them the words which you have given to me. And they have received them. And when you go on vacation this summer to some other church, I hope you have the same experience. Look, it doesn't matter if the uh, man drones on, if he has no great gifts. I, I thought this recently when I listened to a pretty famous author from the 20th century. Uh, it's amazing. On Sermon Audio, you could find these old recordings of people. And you're like, boy, I, I wonder what he's going to sound like, right? And then you listen to him, and it's like, well, mm, okay. Um, the man has no dynamic speaking ability. He's a rather plain man. He doesn't raise his voice or vary his tone very much. I mean, um, one of my favorite theologians of the 20th century, uh, John Murray, finally got, some, got a hold of some of his recordings. I thought, oh, man, I get to hear John Murray. Well, it's good for when you're trying to get to sleep at night. Um, he's, definitely a, he's definitely a very convicting, persuasive preacher. But there is nothing in him. Why then does he have any authority and power? And why is he so? Because he is scrupulous about speaking God's word. And I can listen to anyone with great interest in profit when I realize that this is where his authority has come from. It's come from submission. And when he speaks, there's a divine power that is in my heart that is echoing back his words, however given, to say, that's true, that's right. This man is my spokesman, hear him. The man is in total submission to God, and that means the man has total authority from God. And that is what Jesus is saying here it, time and time again, not for his own benefit or merely those for his hearers as well, although he is for his hearers, but he's training his disciples how they might likewise bear witness, even in the face of opposition. I'm not giving you my own words. I'm not doing my own deeds. This is the principle that our Lord is giving here for all of our life and work and ministry in the world. This is how we are going to bear fruit, he says, and how it will remain. It's the next verse, he notice. 
that we are to speak as he spoke, we are to work as he worked, to pray as he prayed, to keep his commandments as he kept his father's commandments, to live in the world as he lived in the world, just as he was sent into the world, so he sends us, no matter what that means. Verse 18, even if the world hates you, it hated him first. So if you were of the world, it would love its own, but because I chose you out of the world, therefore it hates you. So remember, a servant isn't greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. But if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Why? Because it's not from you. The word is not ours. So you see the general principle, how it works out, just practically speaking, what we're doing now. Or we could think about the officers of the church. What is it that gives the officers of our church any authority? Well, think about the elders. You say, well, wait a minute. Well, the elders, they're, they're entitled to respect because of their office. Well, that's true. The Bible says that. But I tell you, practically speaking, what is it that gives any man any authority? It's a recognition by the people that they themselves are in absolute submission to God. And authority from God is the result of submission to God. And Jesus says, if they kept my word, they'll keep yours also, brothers. So keep that in mind. You don't have to have the greatest gifts and the most dynamic abilities and so forth here. It's not of us to begin with, but there is a power that is not ours. Husbands and fathers, what about you? Where does your authority come from? You say, well, I'm the head of the home. Well, listen, fathers. Fathers with authority are men who are completely submitted to God. And those who are not completely submitted to God... Well, you know how much of a loss of moral authority means, practically speaking. You know as well as I do, and everyone in your house knows, godly men do what God does, say what God says, and they have authority. And there are quiet men. Men who hardly speak a word, who just have a look sometimes. But in the eyes of their family, they have the authority of God because they are men of such marked submission to God. How about uh, you wives and mothers? You know, the world tells you not to be submissive because submission means humiliation. It means degradation. The world says a submissive woman is a woman who loses all authority. Oh, really? I wonder if children are eagerly submissive to a mother who refuses to submit to authority. And did Jesus lose his authority because he claimed and demonstrated his submission on so many occasions? You see, no, that was the way he established his authority. Chapter after chapter, exactly. I tell you the truth. Christian women can have more practical authority than men in the home for this reason. I mean, so, so they, they, they spend more time sometimes with the children and they have more influence. But what I mean is practical authority. They have... They have the moral authority that comes from godliness and integrity that others in the home, sometimes their husbands lack. I don't say it should be the way, but I am saying that godly women command great authority and leave a stamp on their children that lasts for generations through their marked submission. You see the paradox 
you students, you children? What about you? Well, the world says definitely for you not to be submissive to your parents. You can assert your own authority by being unsubmissive. A submissive person will lose all authority in the eyes of people. Well, maybe they don't know anything about true authority as Jesus teaches it. Just practically speaking, I don't know many parents or employers who give unsubmissive people any authority. But my point is, submission to God is what gives you authority from God. Even Jesus said, John 8, 49, I honor my Father. If you want to be able to see a young man, a young woman, who is able to stand against the winds and the tides of the world, and who is able to have a word that has authority, that authority can only come from one place, which is submission. Jesus applies this in verse 20 to our witness. That'll be our theme next week. And everyone in the congregation, you know this personally. If you have to speak, pe- speak to people about faith or life, when are you able to do that with any real authority, with God's authority, and look people in the eye? Is it when you yourself are being sinful and worldly? Or when you are obviously in such submission before God and men? Godly submission is what gives you supernatural authority. If they kept my words, they'll keep yours also. That's the connection. And I say this to all of Christ's people because of this essential connection to everything, to your life and ministry as the Lord is sending you out into the world. Jesus says, if they persecuted me, they'll persecute you, but if they kept my word, they will keep yours also. Jesus is preparing them to face the hostility and the persecution of the world that will come because of their words and their works, which are not theirs. He's preparing them to face it realistically. And he warns them they're going to divide around you just as they divided around me. And the more like me you are, the more that some of them will hate you for my sake. But remember, they hated him without a cause. Not everybody's going to listen to you. Not everyone's going to accept your word. Not everyone will approve of your life and testimony. Your authority will not have an effect on many people or have the opposite effect, it seems. But there's the other side. If they kept my word, they'll keep yours too. This is the secret then to the fruitful life, as he tells us in the middle of this chapter. Arthur Pink comments, the inexperienced Christian supposed that The hatred of the world against him is a reproach. He thinks that he's to blame for it. He imagines if he were only kinder, more gentle, more humble, more Christ-like, the enmity of unbelievers would be overcome. This is a great mistake. The truth is, the more Christ-like we are, the more we shall be antagonized and shunned. The most conclusive proof of this is to be found in the treatment which our Savior received when he was in the world. If the purest love, which was ever manifested on earth, if goodness incarnate was hated by men in general, if the brighter his love shone, the fiercer was the enmity which met it in response, then how can we expect to be admired and esteemed by the world? Surely none will entertain the horrible thought that any of us could do better than the Son of God, end quote. And so, brothers and sisters, I say to you in conclusion, there are a few words more unpopular today than authority and submission. 
We prefer words like liberation and equality and independence. Jesus is showing these dear friends of his, taking them into his confidence to show them another way, the way that he himself has modeled for them, chapter after chapter. That he is going to say things, and that, that we are going to say things and do things and even receive hatred, not from us. That is the way of authority. Sometimes modern evangelists will talk about all the positives of being a Christian and not stress the cost of discipleship or the persecutions which must come. I think that was probably more common in the past, but whatever the case, the modern failure does not stem from Jesus. He was very realistic about discipleship. We've seen in the last few weeks, Jesus speaks very warmly about the greatness of the Christian life, the nobility of it, the blessing of it, that we are in him. And by a living faith by which we are to have fruitful lives and bear fruit that will remain to eternity. And we are part of a community of brotherly love and that we will enjoy this sense of belonging to something that is wonderful and eternal and pure and mighty. And the Holy Spirit will be given to empower us. And as a result, we will do greater works than Christ did as we've studied in the weeks past. But Jesus will not gloss over this other truth, the fact that our love for Jesus will draw the hatred of the world. And that as we go out to bear fruit, that fruit that will remain, the only way we're going to be able to do it in light of these opposition, in light of this opposition, is by following the marching order of Jesus. These aren't my words. These aren't my deeds. But Jesus says, no longer do I call you servants. A servant does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should remain. That Whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give you. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, how wonderful it is when we see this humbling truth again set forth in our Lord himself. And how much we also need it in our lives as you've appointed it so that whatever we ask in his name that we should receive, so we pray that for Jesus' sake, that we should have a new confidence and boldness and moral authority in our homes, among our friends, and our place of work, in the church, in the world in general, by speaking what is not ours to speak, by doing what is was not ours to do, except that we have received it in him. We pray that you would encourage every faint heart, that you would strengthen every weak knee, we pray that we, as your people, being taken into such confidence and being called friends, would be able to fulfill this word in a hostile.